With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. This is a follow-up interview with Andrew Warner. We told his life story back in November of 2020. It was episode 48. And since then, we've stayed in touch and he's been giving me some great advice. So this episode of Founder Wisdom, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into his new book. We're going to talk about how to focus on the big vision and ignore the noise. And finally, he's going to tell us how he uses his interview skills to create better relationships and business opportunities. Also, towards the end of the episode, I'll ask him some advice on the projects I've been working on. All right, let's get into the episode. I remember wanting to run a marathon on every continent a couple of years ago, and I would literally be up nights saying, why did I tell the world that I was going to do it all in one year? I'm now going to look like a fool because I can't get to Antarctica. And it really kept me up nights, and it kept me making phone calls and doing all these weird things that just sucked up a ton of time. And then I got to Antarctica, and it felt so good. And I realized I do well with a little bit of stress. Not so much stress that I think my whole life is going to die, that, that, that my family, my kids, myself are going to die. But enough stress that it feels like, ooh, there's danger if I don't do this, and I don't want that kind of danger. That's good. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Okay, to start off, can you state your full name and like three or four sentences about who you are and what you do? My name is Andrew Warner. I run Mixergy, where I've been doing interviews and courses taught by startup entrepreneurs. And I wrote a book about how I interview. It's called Stop Asking Questions. Really quick question, Austin, did you just follow all the tech entrepreneurs out to Austin or like, what is it like there? Because like, it seems that there's been an influx of tech entrepreneurs going to Texas, specifically Austin. And I imagine that makes the environment really dynamic, especially like maybe the most dynamic it's, it's been for that category of people. I can only talk about my experience and say that, yes, a lot of my friends from San Francisco are here, and that's been really good and comforting when you're in a new environment, and they're incredibly welcoming. Everybody here is. As far as how dynamic it is, people are not having conversations with the same diehard, like fire in their eyes, determination to change the world tomorrow as they had in San Francisco. And partially, I kind of want that. I I want a little bit of downtime. I always loved how when I went to my kids' school events, everybody there was doing something in tech that was amazing. But I also felt tired of that, you know, that I couldn't even escape my world when I went to a parent-teacher conference or to the playground after school or if I just wanted to go for a run. Everybody who was running around, you know, in in, in whatever that organized race was, they were all in tech too. I needed a way to, to get a break, and so I'm getting that here. Yeah. And maybe with a little bit of that space, did that help you finish the book? And can you tell me a little bit more about how you started the journey 
of, of creating this book. I found myself with a lot of time over COVID and I said, you know, I don't want to commit to anything right now because I've got things that I'm doing. I'm running my company. I'm also helping with homeschooling of my kids, but I need something to do with the extra time. And so I said, I'm going to commit to doing things that only take like a day. And one of the things that someone asked me to do was write a chapter of his book. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And then he didn't like what I wrote. And he said, I need you to do it a different way. And I said, okay, as long as it takes me one day, I'll do it. And what I found was I liked the writing. I liked the second writing. I liked his feedback and I wanted to do more. And so I said, how do I get help writing? And he said, you could do this if you had a topic. And I said, no, what I really want is... I want a person, a person I can talk to on a weekly basis who checks in with me, who makes sure that what I'm doing makes sense. And so he introduced me to someone who introduced me to an editor at Penguin, and I just hired her directly to work with me. And once a week for the better part of a year, actually, and later on, twice a week, we would just meet and I would I would do some writing and then she would check in and we tried to figure out what's the topic. And the thing I thought would be the topic was I saw a lot of people doing Zoom meetings and not getting energized by them. I got a lot of energy from having Zoom meetings, just like I do out of going out and having drinks with friends. We thought that would be the topic. How do I take all the experience that I had doing interviews over the years using remote software and give those techniques to other people? And as I kept going, I realized, well, the deeper, richer experience, the more unique experience is doing interviews. There's nobody who's done as many interviews as I've done in as organized a way online. And so we turned the book into that. And so I started reaching out to interviewers online saying, does anyone need help? Just so I could understand what issues they have, run some of the ideas by them. And the more I wrote and the more feedback I got, the more juiced I got. Can you tell me a bit about the process of actually writing? So it seems like a lot of the time was like, what is the topic that you want to create? So how did you go about like executing on that idea once you picked it? We thought we had a topic with how to have meaningful, deep conversations remotely. And so I said, let's take all these techniques that I've learned over the years and just list them. And then once we wrote that out, we started looking for stories. I love stories. One of the things that I got out of teaching Dale Carnegie was we would take these engineers who never felt comfortable talking to people in any circumstance, who suddenly were being told by their boss, you have to give presentations to make a case for your point. And they would hate it. So we take those engineers and then we'd spend time teaching them how to be persuasive and interesting and do it all within two minutes. And I saw how persuasive that was, how entertaining it was. I remember this one guy, he hated being in the session and he somehow managed to tell us a story about working as an engineer there and how his boss forced him to come to the session and he hated it and he was never going to do well here because he's only there for the grade. And so... We took him and at the end of the session, he gave such a persuasive speech that he won the competition for the best speech of the week. And it's all by showing him how to tell stories. And so I said, all right, every time I have a point here and I've listed up a bunch of points, I'm going to look for stories in my interviews that illustrate them. So I'm not going to tell you how to get somebody to feel comfortable before a conversation starts and then just leave it at that. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Then I'm going to show you a story that explains it. Then I'm going to make my point and then I'm going to go back and find other examples from others who've done it so that you see it from me, you see it from other examples, you see it explained. And that became the structure that we used. And so then the next step was to figure out, is this useful? And so I just started going out on Twitter and email and saying, I want to help people. 
the people who got really lit up were people who want to do interviews, people who wanted to get to know like their boss or they wanted to get to know the people they admired or people who just wanted to change their lives and wanted to see how other people did it. And they were doing these interviews and they felt that they that they sucked as interviewers, that there was something missing. And so they started asking me questions. And then as I answered them and I saw their eyes light up, I would take what I told them and then write it in the book. And every week I did that. What was one of the first things that you taught that like someone where you realized, okay, like this is the moment that I have a new idea, maybe a possibly like more engaging idea to shape this book around. Do you remember one of those conversations? Yeah, one of it was I was talking to someone who is a podcaster and he felt he was being boring. And what we realized was he was trying to give the audience what they wanted. And that sucks. What he needed to do was feel okay with giving himself what he wanted out of the conversation, getting really selfish in the interview. Because if he could get really selfish in the interview, then he could tap into a need that only he is super aware of. And then other people in the audience will have felt the same thing and want to learn with him. And I think that's what I did as an interviewer in the early days. I didn't just start interviewing entrepreneurs about their journey. I started out because my software company failed and I wanted to understand how to succeed, how to do better next time. And so all the interviews that I did were with that in mind. How did you start? Now, am I picking up on something that's useful here for me or not? Where am I taking this? And by making it practical for myself, I started making it practical for so many other entrepreneurs. Now it's been 14 years and I see entrepreneurs all the time who took what they learned from these interviews and used it to shape their lives, but I wasn't trying to do it for them. Like last night, I, I saw Sam Parr, founder of The Hustle, incredibly successful, incredibly engaging email newsletter about business. He said he was listening to my early interviews about people in the email newsletter space making money from it and they love their jobs and it made sense. And so he took that and he said, I think I'm going to do the same thing for business. And it succeeded. The thing is, I wasn't doing those interviews for Sam. I was doing it for myself to try to figure out what worked for me. And because I was asking questions that were so useful for me and real and not trying to imagine what someone else would want, they became useful for other people. Anyway, so that was a big realization. And what was releasing it like? What has the response been like after you've spent so much time putting this book into existence? People who read it got so much out of it as interviewers. That part felt phenomenal to see, first of all, that there are interviewers who I've known for years who are sending me messages telling me what they're using. And that was very comforting and exciting. And so I went with a new publishing company and truthfully, there were mistakes in the book. And that part was so hurtful. They're, they're getting fixed. And I, I stand by my decision for the same reason that when Wade, the founder of Zapier, asked me if I wanted to try his software and I became the first customer and the first user of their software. And the thing was just whacked out. Zapier, now this tool that connects software for so many businesses, was just wacky. And so I feel it's the same thing here, but it's painful when it comes to a book in a level that it's not when it comes to software. I don't want to see a period missing. I don't want to see something duplicated. When I saw some of the mistakes, I was really just hurt. And it's also, I mean, this is something so personal too, because it's like mixed in with your story and your experiences. Uh, so I imagine that makes it especially tough. I always wanted to write a book. As a kid, I used to sit in my house, in my bedroom, at my desk, just writing out this story that my dad told and thinking I could turn it into a children's book. 
and it never worked. But I always had this idea that I would do it. And I think when I went back and I discovered all my old things from when I was growing up, there were these very childish attempts at writing a book that didn't really finish. And I wanted to finish it because I'm a lifelong reader. I get so much value out of reading, so much connection out of reading. There's a sense of immortality that I always craved because I was always afraid of death. But I thought immortality could be had through books because I'm not as concerned about my flesh. I'm not as concerned about my breath as I am about my brains, my ideas surviving. And so that's why it's, it mattered so much. We talked a lot about legacy, about like looking at these like statues of like these great people and wanting to be like them and have a legacy that is statue worthy and I guess like book worthy too. Do you think that this book is that for you? Is there something else that you're thinking about writing next? I think this book is that. I mean, there has never been a book on interviewing before because there have never been people who had access to doing interviews before. If you really liked a Mike Wallace interview, it made no sense for Mike Wallace to write a book about how he interviews because what were you going to do? Learn how to interview and then do your own 60 Minutes TV show on CBS? <laughs> it's not the reality of the world. Today, we have that. The ability to do interviews is universal. And people could do it on podcasting the way I do it, but they could do it on lots of other apps. I see it more and more on YouTube. I see TikTok. Someone took my interviews and turned them into TikToks, and that did well. And I could see that there's more and more mediums for it. And so then I think, well, is this just another form of content creation? Are we talking about like how dancing was on TikTok? Well, no, there's more depth to it. This is like a new way of learning. Just like when I grew up, there was nothing but books to learn. Well, school too, but school sucked. But you had like a few ways of learning. And then YouTube came out as a new education vehicle. And at first people said, ah, you're never going to really learn anything from YouTube. It doesn't make sense. And then it became something that is common for people to use to... My brother learned how to change a toilet in his bathroom from start to finish without flooding anything from just watching YouTube videos. And that wasn't true five years ago. It just wasn't. There'd be people explaining things, but not well enough. And there'd be holes and you couldn't duplicate it. And now you could. Anyway, the, the same way that that is now universally accepted, I think interviewing will be. I think we're going to head into a world where someone says, I want to be, I don't know, anything random. Let's say an accountant. And they absolutely will have to learn accounting and school will be the most important part of that. But where do I go in my accounting life? Won't be something you just go and look on YouTube because there's, there's just not enough personalization in YouTube and there's not enough connection in YouTube. It'll be the kind of thing that you say, you know what? There's an accounting firm I want to work at, Ernst & Young. I want to find somebody who has a career that I think makes sense for me and go interview that person and see what I could learn. And by the way, if I'm going to do that, if I just do it over dinner, it's not directed enough. At a dinner, you have to do a little bit of back and forth. You talk more about yourself. You talk more about the food. In an interview, you sit down and say, here's my goal for this interview. I want a career in accounting. You have that career. I want to find out what it took to get there and is it worth it? What would you have changed about it? And I'm doing it not for some greater good, but for myself. Now you've got something that is incredibly useful and unmatched by books, by YouTube, by school, even by the mentorship programs that school offer. It's unmatched. And so that's where I think the exciting part is. Nobody has done it. Nobody is teaching it. Nobody, nobody fully realizes the value of it. And I do. I have done it. And I'm going to continue to teach it. And I think, yes, this is, this is going to stand up as the legacy, a big part of it for sure. 
you mentioned asking the people whose success you admire questions about like that success and like how they achieve that. And so I actually want to ask you some questions about finding founders, what I've been up to. I have some opportunities that I'm trying to suss out like what to focus on. And I'm struggling right now with how to prioritize opportunity. A little background about what I've been up to since we last talked. So continued doing Finding Founders and it's like a machine. We're doing all these like really cool interviews. I love where it is creatively. Like I feel like creatively, it's awesome. However, directly it's not making any money, but it has opened up opportunities. So I started producing a audio documentary series that is actually like in the middle of possibly selling to a distributor. And we did a great job of that. And then another path was um, we created a, a cohort-based course on podcasting. Now we're trying to have people pay for it. And so we partnered with a bunch of like podcasting companies to do webinars as like a free webinar to funnel people into this course, uh, the nexus of podcasting and TikTok. And the reason we did that is because I launched a new show. And within the last two months, we're now getting like 13 million views a month on TikTok, which is translated a little bit to our the, the podcast version of it. So that new show's TikTok is growing but it's still not at the point where it's like super profitable if we monetize in itself, but maybe on that path. And then third is one, the person that I work with on the audio documentary, and he wants to build like a media company and like help, help me basically roll up all of these things that I've been doing under the umbrella of like a media company. I'm trying to figure out how to prioritize would always go for the grander vision. If you have a grand vision, you're lucky to have it. I interviewed this woman, Laura Fitton, who at one point dropped everything to go watch the Berlin Wall come down. And when she was getting ready to go watch it, she said, wait, it's kind of ridiculous. I'm about to go all the way to Germany to watch this thing. That's just ridiculous. And her friend said to her, don't you understand? You're lucky that you see this passion to go over there and do the thing. That's not everyone has that. Go over. And one of the things that she's done is not just go over to Germany, but when she had a vision for her business, instead of saying that's a great idea and moving on, she actually did it. She created an app store for Twitter. She ended up doing other things that all kind of rolled into these businesses that she ended up leading. And I think about that a lot. When we have a big vision, it's so easy to say, yeah, I'll put it on hold. I'll do this other thing first and then do it. It's much more meaningful to realize that is an unusual thing to have. We've got to pursue it. And these little things, they tend not to pay off anyway. These little things that are supposed to give you security don't really do much. You know, spend forever trying to create a little bit of a profit on a course for podcasting. Is that really going to change your life dramatically? No. I think uh, if you have a vision and a big one and it's meaningful, you got to go for that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Listen, there's this guy, Gregory Gallon. When I was just getting started in, in tech again, after selling the company, I, I got back into it a little bit. He got me fired up because he would interview people like Reed Hoffman, got them to do interviews for something called a podcast, which nobody even knew what the frick, what a podcast was. 
And Gregory Gallant did it, and I talked to him, and he showed me how to do these interviews too. Well, I was doing it before, but he gave me some tips based on his experience. And then he dropped out, and I thought, oh, that guy gave up. What a loser. He didn't stick with this thing. Even if he had a business idea, you should have stuck with this. And I was wrong. We've, we reconnected years later. He created this company, Muckrack, that Mark Cuban was a customer of because it helps him stay in touch with journalists. And the whole thing is about how to connect with journalists. I didn't take it seriously because all I saw was the first version of Muckrack, which was how to connect with journalists on Twitter. It was like, who gives a rat's ass? Why does he get that excited about Twitter? But he started out with that and then he kept building it up and building it up. It is a fantastically successful, very profitable business that now if he wants to, and he does want to get back into podcasting, he's got a way better path to continue what he did with his podcast than the average person would to start fresh. So it's not like all the work that he did on his podcast before disappeared. It's that all the work that he did before went on hiatus while he went and jacked up what he could do with his business. He didn't do the podcast as a way of doing a podcast. He did the podcast as a way of having a better life. And if the better life meant pausing the podcast to go create this media company, great. And you know what? One of the reasons why he got back into podcasting and did well was he got Mark Cuban to be his first guest when he restarted. And Mark Cuban didn't just say, let me talk to you about my business and my life. He said, let me also tell you how your software helps me with my business and my life. This is why we're connected. Think about that. So what I'm saying to you is, let me pause everything else. Everything else is just a distraction. What's the clear big vision that gets you excited that you want to do no matter what? that if you can somehow pull off, that would be a life worth living. Just think about that and then drop everything else. Drop out of this conversation. Drop out of cleaning your, your bathroom and taking out the garbage. Just drop out of everything else and, and do that until you realize that it's not going to work or it's not going to be exciting for you and then move on to something else. But if you can talk about it now and just feel the excitement for it, you'll know whether it's it's the one or not. And if it's not, then don't fuck around with it. If it's not, then just say, it's a great idea. It's a good opportunity. It's just not feeling like the big one for me. I'll wait for the next one. And then I'm going to drop everything for that. Sit down, write down what it is. Or if you're someone who's more like me and you do better talking, talk through with someone else what that could be. And then when you feel it like, oh, that would be so good, but I don't know if I could pull it off. I don't know if it makes sense. That's when you know you got it. And also do the thing that's stressful. I remember wanting to run a marathon on every continent a couple of years ago, and I would literally be up nights saying, why did I tell the world that I was going to do it all in one year? I'm now going to look like a fool because I can't get to Antarctica. And it really kept me up nights and it kept me making phone calls and doing all these weird things that just sucked up a ton of time. And then I got to Antarctica and it felt so good. And thankfully, I recorded myself making calls to these people. You know, I just kind of kept the camera on myself as I was uh, making phone calls. So I got a record at the end of all this of all the hard work it took to get to Antarctica. And at the time, I said, if I take on another project, I'm not going to do anything that puts that kind of stress into me. I should enjoy my year and not feel stressed. And I realized I do well with a little bit of stress. Not so much stress that I think my whole life is going to die, that, that, that my family, my kids, myself are going to die. But enough stress that it feels like, ooh, there's danger if I don't do this. And I don't want that kind of danger. That's good. I've never had anything really amazing happen without that. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. 
Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandazer. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.